This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From about 15 years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, as always. Pixie, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Aaron, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Janice, Katarina, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Jeanette, two Emmas, another Janice, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, John, and my girl Judy. Thank you so, so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for the sudden influx of new listeners, welcome to the Murder Family. Now, this podcast is a continuation from last October's Murdering Mothers series, and our first this year will be Mary Beth Tenning. So Mary Beth Rowe Tenning was born on September 11th, 1942 in Duensburg, New York. I hope I pronounced that correctly. So let's get into some history for that time. So during this year, the mobilization of war efforts during World War II were fast and effective with regards to vehicle manufacturers, as well as others, changed their production lines over to making weapons for war. We also saw an uptick in war-themed movies. The U.S. rounded up around 120,000 Japanese or Japanese-descended people and sent them to internment camps after Pearl Harbor. This was called Executive Order 9066. The Declaration of the United Nations was signed by 26 nations, which laid the foundation of what would become the United Nations Organization after the end of World War II. Leaders, including Roosevelt and Churchill, as well as representatives from the United States, United Kingdom, China and the Soviet Union and the other 22 nations met in Washington, D.C. to discuss military decisions regarding the war after the U.S. allies joined. The Alaska Highway from Alaska through Canada was completed this year. The beloved children's movie Bambi premiered this year, being Disney's fifth animated feature at this point. Also, the movie Casablanca was released this year. 
Some other notable people born this year include Joe Biden, Jimi Hendrix, Harrison Ford, Jerry Garcia, Stephen Hawking, and two of our serial killers, Robert Picton and John Wayne Gacy. So this was the atmosphere that Mary Beth was born into. Her parents were Ruth and Alton Rowe. Now, Alton had been a soldier during World War II during some of Mary Beth's younger years. He had been deployed overseas, but when he returned, he went on to work as a press operator at General Electric. From what I could find, Ruth worked while her husband was deployed, though I couldn't find if she continued to work after her husband returned from war. Mary Beth was the oldest of two children, the second child being her little brother. So, while her parents were working, she and her brother were sometimes left with nearby relatives to be looked after. Now, it was during one of these times where she was being watched by an elderly relative that they told her she had been in accidental pregnancy and that her parents hadn't wanted her. This affected her deeply and changed the way that she felt about herself for the rest of her life. It was stated that, a few years later, she told her little brother, quote, You were the one they wanted, not me. End quote. And while she only later gave one story of what she called kind of abuse, there didn't seem to be any others. She later reported that her father had terrible arthritis in his hands, and so when he had felt that she needed serious discipline, he had struck her once with a fly swatter. He then locked her in her room to calm down. Outside of this, I could find no other stories of any harsh treatment at all. As she grew into her teens, it was said that she attempted to end her life several times. But she did go on to attend Duensburg High School and was a fairly successful student. As each source made a point to make out, she was apparently average in nearly every way. And folks, this is about all that I could find out about her childhood, and there's not much to go on, but there's a little. So let's dig in. Mary Beth's father was a soldier during World War II. Now, sources kind of varied when it came to whether or not he was deployed out before or after she was born, but regardless, both parents were working when she was quite young. Of course, we know that many mothers had to suddenly leave the home and go to work in factories or wherever because the men were off to war. This left many of their children having to be left with family and friends. So even though this was the 1940s and into the very early 50s, it wasn't unheard of for Mary Beth and her brother to have been babysat, so to speak. Now, the elderly family member telling her that she had been an unwanted child would have been devastating for any child to hear. One study out of the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships suggested that people who believe they were unwanted or unplanned babies likely have more troubled relationships. This negative information impacts how secure and loved they feel as adults, or in other words, it affects their attachment style. And if you've been with me long enough, you will understand just how vital this is. So, 
After analysis, the researchers concluded, quote, being unwanted and to a lesser extent unplanned was associated with attachment insecurities or anxiety and avoidance. Birth status and knowledge about it play a role in children's lives, affecting their attachment and mental representation into adulthood. People can either be anxiously attached, concerned about being abandoned and rejected, or they can be avoidantly attached. They try to downplay the importance of close relationships and suppress their emotions. Alternatively, they can be securely attached when they feel comfortable or at ease in close relationships and are not worried about trust, dependence, or getting too close or not close enough to others. End quote. And clearly we see that Mary Beth took this information to heart as we know that she later told her younger brother that he had been the wanted child and not her. From there, we know that she attempted to take her own life several times in her adolescence or teen years. Young people with this type of ideation can kind of take two forms, passive and active. So the passive ideation leans more toward vague ideas about taking one's life. It is viewed as a possible means to end the perceived pain, but usually no action is actually taken. Active, on the other hand, is when the ideation is persistent and they continue to feel hopeless. These feelings are often caused by untreated depression or drug abuse, which in the case of Mary Beth, I believe it to be depression, and it very much needed to be taken quite seriously. And while we don't know what signs she might have been exhibiting, here are some that teenagers who are experiencing this ideation show. Becoming extremely agitated, upset, depressed, and or anxious. Beginning to use drugs and or alcohol, which again, I don't think Mary Beth was doing. Changing obvious characteristics of their personality. Being self-destructive or engaging in risk-taking behaviors changes in sleeping or eating, expressing hopelessness or feeling trapped, extreme mood swings, giving away possessions for no particular reason, making a point to say goodbye to people. I mean, the list is really long. Now, during the time that this was going on with her, most people considered taking yourself or your teen to a therapist as bringing you know, scandal to the family from society if word got out or lowering one's social status for their family. If you've seen the show AMC's Mad Men, then you get what I mean. We can't be sure, of course, but I would gather that she was not put on any medications, given psychotherapy, or anything in between. We will find out soon enough that perhaps intervention was exactly what she needed. So let's get back to the story. Mary Beth had shown some interest in going to college after high school in 1961, but had later said that all she really ever wanted in life was to be married to someone who loved her and to have children. College just wasn't a priority and instead she went to work. She was employed at various sort of minimum wage jobs, but eventually wound up working as a nursing assistant at Ellis Hospital, not far from her hometown. 
For the next couple of years, she dated off and on, but nothing of any substance. Then when she was 21 years old, her friend set her up on a blind date with a boy named Joseph Tenning. Joe was described as a shy, quiet young man who had a, quote, kindly disposition and had a squeaky clean life. He worked at the same facility as Mary Beth's father, and it seemed that Joe and Mary Beth were a good match. They dated for a couple of years, and then in the spring of 65, they were married. So sources say their marriage was comfortable enough. She was described as a, quote, woman of average appearance, though I think she was above that, really, my opinion. She was five foot four tall, an inch taller than myself, with blue eyes and blonde hair. She was in pretty good shape as far as societal standards at the time and preferred to keep her hair short and liked to look nice. But under the facade of complete normalcy that Mary Beth presented was something else and others picked up on it. Many of her friends, acquaintances, and some family members described her as strange and that she never really seemed truly happy. Both Mary Beth and Joe worked hard, like most young couples in their part of New York State, and then she discovered she was pregnant. Their first child, Barbara, was born in May of 1967, and it appeared that the now 25-year-old mother threw herself into motherhood like a duck to water, as they say. She finally had the life that she had always wanted, right? Then three years later, in 1970, she gave birth to their son, Joseph Jr., whom they called Joey. And now, with two beautiful small children, a doting, docile husband, she felt like her life should be bliss, but she was still not completely happy. In fact, there was some that said that while Joe was very loving and doting on the children, Mary Beth acted rather distant, except when the children made her look good, of course, perhaps as a flashy and expensive handbag, let's say. And then only two months after having Joey, she found herself pregnant yet again. Then at seven months pregnant, Mary Beth would receive news that would break her heart. In October of 1971, her father died from a sudden heart attack. Two months later, she gave birth to their third child, Jennifer, but Jennifer was failing to thrive. It was discovered that the newborn had meningitis with multiple brain abscesses or pockets of infection that had reportedly developed while in the womb. And while the baby fought for her life, she only lived for a week and died while still in the hospital on January 3rd, 1972. For nearly all of us, the loss of a child is one of the most painful, heartbreaking experiences, and my heart truly goes out to any parents who have. No one can possibly understand that level of pain without having to go through it. The trauma of it is exhausting, and the well-meaning friends and family and their constant apologies and sympathy can be, well, overwhelming at times. 
Couples who have experienced this loss can begin to have difficulties within their own relationship, just all around an unimaginably difficult time, except for Mary Beth. It would seem that she sort of enjoyed the attention she was getting from her family and friends after the two major tragedies, the loss of her father and now her newborn baby girl. One source stated that, quote, some who attended Jennifer's funeral recalled it seemed more like a social event than a funeral, end quote. And then 13 days later, tragedy would strike again. Mary Beth rushed little toddler Joey to the hospital in desperation, claiming that he had had a seizure and was choking on his own vomit. He was tended to immediately, of course, but the doctors could find nothing wrong with him. So they kept him under observation for a time, but when he showed no other signs of convulsions or any other malady, really, that would explain it, they discharged the little boy back home and into the care of his loving parents. Just a few short hours later, Mary Beth showed back up to the hospital with little Joey in her arms, convulsing again. She told the doctors that she had discovered him all tangled up in his blankets and that his body had turned blue. And though they tried desperately to save him, he unfortunately passed away. She would later tell police, quote, he was taking a nap. It was close to his birthday, and he had slept, taken a nap, slept unusually long. Unfortunately, I did not go in to check on him, and when I did, he appeared to be having respiratory problems, of which I did not cause. End quote. So his death was listed as unknown, and there was no autopsy. Then, barely six weeks later, Mary Beth was back at the hospital, this time with nearly five-year-old Barbara. She stated that her daughter had also gone into convulsions. The little girl passed away the next day on March 2, 1972. The cause of death was listed as brain swelling, and some of the doctors thought she had had Ray's syndrome, which is very rare, but is a serious condition that causes swelling in the liver and brain. It most often affects children and teenagers who are recovering from a viral infection like the flu or chickenpox. Now, with three child deaths, the police were, of course, contacted. Officers came to speak with the medical staff, and after, there were no charges. So, if you do the math, that's three deceased children in nine weeks. Mary Beth was exhibiting severe mood swings and became more withdrawn, but, you know, that's kind of to be expected. Sources say that Joe and Mary Beth decided to sell their house and buy another in hopes of a fresh start. Not quite a year later, she discovered that she was pregnant again and gave birth to a healthy, happy baby boy in November of 1973. They proudly named him Timothy. The couple took the infant home, and just three weeks later, Mary Beth stated she found him dead in his crib. 
The doctors at the hospital declared that he had died from SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. It used to be called crib death. So for those that aren't familiar, okay, according to Boston Children's Hospital, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, is the sudden and unexplained death of a baby younger than one year old. The diagnosis is made if the baby's death remained unexplained even after a death scene investigation, autopsy, and review of clinical history. It is more likely to affect babies between one to four months old, is more common in boys than girls, and oddly, most occurs during the fall, winter, and spring months, which I didn't know. Factors that can place a baby at higher risk include babies placed on their stomachs or sides to sleep rather on their backs, becoming overheated, fluffy blankets or toys around the baby while sleeping, smoking mothers during pregnancy, though I'm not entirely sure Mary Beth smoked, mothers who were younger than 20 years old when they became pregnant, premature or low birth weight babies, and having a sibling who has also died of SIDS. So again, Mary Beth's friends and relatives all attended the funeral, gave the grieving mother their love and sympathy, though, well, most began to raise an eyebrow of suspicion. She played the part of the grieving mother quite well. Some said a little too well. But her and Joe's marriage was suffering greatly, and things were, quote, touch and go, as they say. The next year, in 1974, Joe began acting strangely, and Mary Beth took him to the hospital, where he was immediately admitted with a near-fatal barbiturate poisoning. A type of barbiturate that we have all heard of is phenobarbital. It acts as a central nervous system depressant. He made, of course, a full and speedy recovery and was sent home to his anxious and loving wife. So sometime around June of that same year, Mary Beth became pregnant with her fifth child, and she gave birth to a baby boy named Nathan on March 30, 1975. Again, he was born healthy and strong and was sent home to his doting parents. When he was six months old, Mary Beth once again rushed her child to the hospital, stating that she had been driving with Nathan lying in the front seat of the car with her. And side note, guys, back then no one used car seats for babies, so him lying in the seat next to her would have been considered normal. But she realized that he wasn't breathing, she said. Nathan passed away, and the doctor stated he died from acute pulmonary edema, which is excess fluid in the lungs, making it quite difficult to breathe. At this point, Mary Beth was 33 years old and had lost five children. Every single one of her children had died. Odd, don't you think? Well, medical staff got together to analyze her case, and they suspected that perhaps there was a death gene playing a role. So Mary Beth and Joseph also allegedly submitted to several medical examinations over the years to search for some sort of answer. This proved to be of very little value. One of the main doctors stated, quote, there is no known genetic disease that can cause sudden death in healthy children, end quote. But it appeared that 
If their children were going to perish, why would they continue to keep having more children? Well, this must not have fallen on deaf ears with Mary Beth, at least, because the couple fostered and then adopted their next child in 1978, Michael, who I can only assume was an infant or at the very least not quite one year old. And then she discovered she was pregnant. On October 29, 1978, she gave birth to a baby girl they named Mary Frances. Three months later, and rather predictably, the baby was taken to the hospital, Mary Beth exclaiming she was having seizures. The baby was treated and sent home. A month later, Mary Frances was at the hospital again, only she didn't survive, and the official cause of death was SIDS yet again. Barely giving her body time to recover, Mary Beth announced that she was pregnant again with her seventh biological child and gave birth to Jonathan in November of 1979. When the infant was four months old, he was taken into the hospital on death's door. This time, the doctors were taking no chances and transported the child immediately to Boston Hospital, where he could be evaluated and treated by specialists. Now, the battery of tests did nothing to explain what caused him to lose consciousness, and he was sent home with his parents. Just three days later, Mary Beth returned to St. Clair's Hospital, and this time her son was already dead. The treating physician listed the cause of death as cardiopulmonary arrest. Joe and Mary Beth had one child left, at this point two and a half year old Michael, and they weren't his biological parents, so it was painfully obvious that if something happened to him, they would know that there was no perceived genetic defect that could be to blame. And he was, by all appearances, a happy, healthy little boy. That is, until March 2nd, 1981 when Mary Beth showed up at the pediatrician's office with him, who had died before she could even get him examined. An autopsy was performed, and it revealed that the toddler was suffering from slight pneumonia, but it wasn't even anywhere near enough to be fatal. And now this immediately garnered suspicions, because first off, the couple literally lived across the street from a hospital, and yet she had waited for the pediatrician's office to open, waited. And she knew suspicions were at all time high and she became paranoid, talking her husband into moving into a new area again. And for three years, things were quiet. The year, now 1984. She was 43 years old and announced that she was pregnant with her eighth biological child. People who knew her were completely aghast, shocked. On August 22, 1985, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl, Tammy Lynn. For the first four months of her life, the doctors monitored her very closely and observed a very happy, healthy baby. And once they began to back off, Tammy Lynn was brought into the hospital having already died. The death was determined to be SIDS, much like her other children. 
Now, just about every person who was aware of the situation, including the hospital, doctors, social workers, even acquaintances, were suspicious and communicated that fact to each other. But the problem wasn't that people weren't suspicious. The problem was that an exact cause of death for the babies could not be determined. And without a definitive ruling from the medical examiner's office, an investigation could not take place. But after the death of Tammy Lynn, investigators from several departments got together to analyze the Tenning family history. The deaths of nine children, along with all of the existing evidence in each case, were carefully reviewed. Medical reports were scrutinized, statements were re-examined, and the available autopsy reports were studied. Even with the plethora of paperwork, which spanned a period of 14 years, there was a consensus that a successful prosecution could still not take place without additional evidence. One thing was certain, though, and that was that there was absolutely no way that many cases of SIDS could happen to one family. It was decided that Mary Beth had to be interviewed again regarding the death of Tammy Lynn. In early February 1986, investigators brought Mary Beth in for questioning. For several hours, she told them about different incidences that had occurred when her children had died. She denied having anything to do with their deaths. She stated that she grieved over the deaths of each of her nine children and denied any role in what happened to them. With the exception of Jennifer, whose cause of death was an infection, she assumed her children died from SIDS or genetic problems. Concerning Tammy Lynn's death, Mary Beth said that on the night of December 19, 1985, she had put her daughter to sleep in her crib like she normally did. Tammy Lynn was crying that night, she said, which annoyed her because it made her feel like an unfit mother. She said that she watched television for a while alone. She said when she returned to check on the baby, she discovered that the baby wasn't breathing. She said she picked up the baby and made an attempt to revive her, but nothing worked. Then she woke her husband and called for an ambulance. But hours into the interrogation, she broke down and finally admitted she had killed three of her children. She insisted, quote, I did not do anything to Jennifer, Joey, Barbara, Michael, Mary Frances, Jonathan, just these three, Timothy, Nathan, and Tammy. I smothered them each with a pillow because I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good mother because of the other children, end quote. So with this confession, Joe was brought to the station and he further encouraged her to, you know, be honest. She began crying and admitted to her husband what she had told the police, that she had murdered some of their children. The interrogators then asked her to go through each of the children's murders and explain what happened. According to her signed statement, Mary Beth killed Tammy Lynn because she would not stop crying. She was arrested and charged with the second-degree murder of Tammy Lynn Tenning. 
The investigators could not find sufficient evidence to charge her with killing the others. And so the trial began in June of 1987, and she was eventually found guilty of second-degree murder for killing her four-month-old daughter, Tammy Lynn. This carried a 20-years-to-life sentence. Now, in Michael Baden's book, Confessions of a Medical Examiner, he stated that very few people doubted the first infant to have died, Jennifer, was born with a severe infection from which she died before she was released from the hospital, right? They didn't think that Mary Beth had actually killed that baby, but Michael disagreed. He said, quote, Jennifer looks to be the victim of a coat hanger. Tenning had been trying to hasten her birth and only succeeded in introducing meningitis. The police theorized that she wanted to deliver the baby on Christmas Day, like Jesus. She thought her father, who had died while she was pregnant, would have been pleased. End quote. He also attributed the deaths of the children were as a result of Mary Beth suffering from acute Munchausen by proxy syndrome. So most of us know what that is, but some might not. So let's take a quick look. According to the University of Michigan Health, quote, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, or MSBP, is a mental health problem in which a caregiver makes up or causes an illness or injury in a person under his or her care, such as a child, an elderly adult, or a person who has a disability. Because vulnerable people are the victims, MSBP is a form of child abuse or elder abuse. End quote. A person with this condition has some medical knowledge, which Mary Beth had, being a nurse's assistant by trade. They look for sympathy and attention, need to feel power and control, and do not see that their behavior is harmful. Their child will have repeated or unusual illnesses, and no reason can be found. Symptoms only occur when the caregiver is with or has recently been with the child. But symptoms get better or go away when the caregiver is not there or is being closely watched. Another child in the family has had unexplained illnesses or death. Researchers theorize that both psychological and biological factors are most likely involved. Many people diagnosed with MSBP were physically, emotionally, or sexually abused when they were children. Some grew up in families in which being sick or injured was a way to receive love or care. It's also believed that stress may play a role in the development of MSBP. This stress could be due to a previous traumatic event, marital problems, or perhaps a serious illness. According to the NHS, Munchausen syndrome may be caused by a parental neglect or abandonment issue or other childhood trauma. Different personality disorders thought to be linked with Munchausen syndrome include antisocial personality disorder, where a person may take pleasure in manipulating and deceiving doctors, giving them a sense of power and control or perhaps borderline personality disorder, where a person struggles to control their feelings and often swings between positive and negative views of others. 
maybe narcissistic personality disorder, where a person often swings between seeing themselves as special and fearing they're worthless. Now, with limited background information on Mary Beth's childhood, it is quite difficult to know for sure, but I feel that her being told she had been unwanted and unwelcome pregnancy and that her parents hadn't wanted her kind of was the trigger. But was the pathology already there? Perhaps her mother suffered with something that was passed down, her father. It's entirely possible, and I lean that way as many of us have felt unwanted and would never harm anyone. But her telling her brother that he had been the only wanted child, the teen depression, the multiple suicide attempts certainly paints a picture, so to speak. And then I know you're curious. So Joe never actually pressed charges against his wife for attempting to fatally poison him. While she was in prison, he actually visited her frequently and would not divorce her. And then just for the icing on top, she was released on August 21st, 2018, after serving over 31 years. And Joe was there when she was released. As part of her release, she was to remain under parole supervision for the rest of her life. A Department of Corrections spokesperson states that she lives near the area she always has lived in upstate New York. She has a curfew and must attend domestic violence counseling. So tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below if you're watching or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can email me. All of my contact information is below. Consider becoming a patron and as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much and have a great day.